While occasionally referencing real-life people and events, the following is a work of historical fiction based on first-hand historical documents featuring both real and imagined dialogue and contains adult language and situations. Listener discretion is advised. Kimiko is a Japanese-American girl whose idyllic life on the West Coast gets uprooted after the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor in December 1941 forces the United States into a global conflict with Axis regimes. This is her story. stupid thing. These fucking guys at Radio Shack, they think they're such hot shit. They spend all this money on a tape recorder, they don't even bother showing you how to use the fucking thing. Uh oh. Oh, I see. The, the red light's flashing, that's supposed to mean it's recording. Okay, I got it, I got it now. Alright. Let's see, let's see. Where was I? I figured my age I would have had things more organized. Oh, here we go. Here we go. 
Let's see. The date is Thursday, April 1st, 1982. Oh. Oh, it's a- April Fool's Day. It's Darius' birthday. What a fucking joke this will be. Anyway, it's quarter to 11 in the evening. Uh, hopefully I can get this done before midnight. Although, I guess it doesn't really matter since I got laid off. I don't have to be up early for work in the morning. I wouldn't, not like I wouldn't be able to sleep anyway. I mean, what am I doing? Where to start? Um, my name is Adam. Uh, my wife, Kimiko, died. In a car crash uh, seven years ago, uh, I started going through her things recently, which I'm sure like, oh hey pal, why take you so long to go through your wife's stuff? And uh, I know, uh, trust me, I know it's just you know losing someone like that so so unexpectedly was, was difficult. Shoot, hey, how long it's taken me to try to get my life together? lost my job because I couldn't drive to work because I had to drive past where she was killed. So I really don't leave the house that much. But I found this box of diaries she kept and, and had been combing through them. She documented most of her life since she was a little girl. I mean, she lived through World War II and her being Japanese, I knew her family had lived uh, in camp throughout the war. Uh, she never really talked about it at all. I mean, I tried to get her a couple times to open up about it, but she just refused. She flat refused. Said it was too painful. Turns out she wrote it all down in these diaries. Almost daily account of her time there. I mean, I'm no writer. I don't know how to write a book. I don't know anybody in publishing. I don't even know why I'm reading you her writings in, in this microphone. Frankly, no one's business. I mean, it's her private life. It, if she never wanted to talk about it, you know, she must have had a pretty good reason that, you know, why. It's not like anyone's ever going to hear this. I mean, our only son is estranged. We got into some big fight when his mom died. And, and haven't talked to each other in over five years. Her parents and brother are, are all gone. You know, mine want nothing to do with me when, when they found out I was marrying a Japanese girl. Daddy said they killed too many of his buddies in the war. It just, I don't know, it just seems a shame to me that, that her story should go untold. So, Monday, December 1st, 1941. School was much better today. I found out that I got an A on the math test that I fretted all last week over. Papa leaves for another fishing expedition on Sunday. He works so hard to provide for our family. I know our little home isn't much, but it's exactly the kind of home I want to live in when I grow up. Mama, Kayo, and I are all going to the wharf on Sunday morning to see Papa off. I wonder how long he'll be gone for this time. Sunday, December 7th, 1941. The strangest thing happened this morning when we went to see Papa and his crew ship out. Normally we wave and wave until their fleet disappears over the horizon, but this time they never did. They just floated there, but they had come to the edge of the earth. It was mighty queer. We thought someone was hurt or maybe an engine had stalled. 
Just then, a man came running from the Wars Lighthouse, yelling that the Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor. We all looked at each other with the same question on our faces. What is Pearl Harbor? Tuesday, December 9th, 1941. We were officially at war with the country my parents were born in. Papa burned his Japanese flag that he brought with him from Hiroshima over 40 years ago. I couldn't believe it. It was made of such beautiful material. Mom and Papa stayed up all night destroying anything that might connect us back to Japan. But it's not like we can just step out of our own skin. We're leaving tonight for Terminal Island so that we can hide out there with the other Japanese families. Saturday, December 13th, 1941. People from the FBI have been questioning everyone and going through people's homes and destroying everything. Papa said they were looking for anything that could imply loyalty to Japan. Everyone is panicking, especially Papa. He keeps saying that it's only a matter of time. A matter of time until what? Monday, December 22nd, 1941. Papa was taken away from us today. Two men from the FBI in dark colored suits came to our door and Papa led them out. Who would do such a thing? Who would take someone's Papa away from their family this close to Christmas? We're told it's because of his fishing license, but we've done nothing wrong. We're just like any other American family, just trying to make a living. Thursday, December 25th, 1941. Christmas. It's been three days and we still haven't heard from Papa. We don't know where he is or what crimes he committed. It's Christmas for crying out loud. Mama is trying to be brave, but she's worried. I can tell. I can hear her crying alone in her room during the night. Thursday, February 19th, 1942. Mama said today that the president signed a law that will force us to leave our home. Why would the president of America force his own people out of their homes? People keep coming by the house asking to buy our things. I heard one man ask to buy Mama's precious china dishes for $15. She said the collection was worth at least $200, but he wouldn't go any higher than $15. Mama got so mad that she started breaking the plates right in front of him. The man begged her to stop breaking the set, but she kept going until every piece was broken. Then she walked away crying. Still no word from Papa. Tuesday, February 24th, 1942. Our family has been told that we're going to live in a camp for the remainder of the war. Honestly, I'm relieved. We heard stories of Japanese homes being attacked 
and people being beaten in the streets. It seems like the government is doing this to protect us, which is a good idea. It will be a fun adventure. Saturday, March 21st, 1942. We have arrived in a place called Manzanar Relocation Center. A bus came and picked us up at a Buddhist temple in Los Angeles. I'd never been outside of LA or, or even on a bus before. I was so excited. I tried to make friends with the bus driver, but he didn't seem to be interested in me. We drove past the barbed wire line fence and arrived just in time for dinner. The camp, including the mess halls, haven't even been completed yet. Dinner was dreadful. Canned Vienna sausage, canned string beans, and overcooked steamed rice topped with canned apricots. I guess the Caucasian people thought that the fruit poured over the rice would make a good dessert. But among the Japanese, rice is never eaten with sweet foods, only with salty or savory foods. I opened my mouth to protest, but Mama jabbed me in the side to keep quiet. Sunday, March 22, 1942. We woke up early shivering from the cold and covered in a fine layer of dust. The high winds blew sand through the openings between the floors and the slits around the door. The shacks they have us staying in are nothing more than a thin wooden plank covered in tar paper and sitting on cement blocks with two feet of open space between the floor and the ground. The floor is uncovered with gaps between the boards. They call each shack a barrack which is divided into six units that are no bigger than most family rooms. Each room has a single bulb hanging from the ceiling and an oil stove for heat. Some of these rooms have almost 10 people living in them. We were given cots and army blankets. Kayo and Mama stuffed the mattress covers they gave us with straw so we could sleep on them. We did what we could to fill as many openings as possible. Wednesday, April 8th, 1942. We spent most of our first couple weeks here sick. First from all the shots they'd given us, then from the food. Food is left out too long and then spoils. It's been coming out at both ends. The Manzanar runs. Relieving yourself doesn't do much for human dignity. Latrines are open rooms over concrete slabs. No partitions for toilets. No privacy at all. One woman dragged a large cardboard box and set it up to cover the toilet on three sides. I heard one person say, We can't live like this. Animals live like this. Tuesday, June 16, 1942. Mom has tried to keep the family unit together, but it's impossible. We kids are outside playing from sunup till sundown. We no longer eat meals as a family together. People are stepping up to do what they can to help run the camps. There's a great sense of community spirit. I guess you could call it patriotism. People just want to do their part. We have a saying, Shikata Gane, which means it cannot be helped. It's how we maintain our dignity in the face of such unavoidable tragedy. It's how we deal with injustices and circumstances beyond our control. This 
fucking thing. Check, check. Uh, hello? Oh, there we go. There we go. The tape ran out. Had to add a new one. This is costing me a fortune. Anyway, where was I? Damn it all to hell. Uh, shit. Ah, ah. Here we are. Here we are. Uh, Monday, July 20th, 1942. Letters have started coming in from Papa. I tried to read them, but most of what was written has been blacked out for some reason. He kept referring to Mama as sweetheart. I've never heard him call her that before. Saturday, October 24th, 1942. Papa came back to us today. He had been staying at some facility in a place called North Dakota. We went to the main gate to watch his bus drive in. The first thing we saw was a cane. He had been gone for 10 months, but looked as if he'd aged 10 years. He was underweight and leaned on his cane, favoring his right leg. Something terrible must have happened to him in North Dakota. Monday, November 30th, 1942. Papa has been back with us for over a month now, but he's not the same person he was before. He rarely leaves his barrack. Most days he sits alone or paces. Mama brings his meals back for him. He has made some sort of alcohol from all the rice and syrup from the canned fruit that he stored up. Every day he drinks from it, gets drunk, and passes out. Then every morning he wakes up, throws up, and starts drinking again. Every time we try to comfort him, he threatens to hit us. Everyone in camp seems to have grown bored and bitter. Monday, December 7th, 1942. It's been a year since the attack on Pearl Harbor, and things here in camp are getting scary. Last night, a riot broke out in front of the police station in camp. People were protesting somebody getting arrested. I don't really know the circumstances. But the MPs shot into the crowd, and two people died. The mess hall bells won't stop ringing. I'm terrified. Saturday, February 6th, 1943. Kayo and Papa got into a huge argument. All of us here at camp have received letters called loyalty oaths. I guess some people are afraid that we're going to do something to hurt America, so they want all of us to pledge allegiance to America like we do every morning before school. Kayo will be 18 soon, and he wants to join the army. Papa doesn't understand how you could be so foolish to want to fight for a country that would lock up its own people for no reason. But we always see ourselves as Americans, and if staying in camp is what we have to do to help our country win the war, that's fine with us. Shikata Gane. Saturday, June 26, 1943. School has been out for a few weeks now. Camps run like little towns. We have our own schools, hospitals, places of worship, post offices. People come from the outside to work in schools and infirmaries. 
We made big, elaborate gardens to beautify the camps and make them our own. We're allowed to go on little hikes just outside the fences. People have come to camp to teach us hobbies and organize clubs. I started baton twirling. What could be more American than putting on boots, a dress, braiding my hair, and spinning a shiny stick and throwing it up as high as I can into the air and catching it while patriotic marching music plays? Friday, September 10th, 1943. Kayo has been drafted and sent down south to basic training. Everyone is sad, even Papa, although he's trying hard not to show it. Shikata Gane. We heard he's going to work as an interpreter. Monday, December 18th, 1944. News broke today that the Supreme Court has ruled our internment here in camp is unconstitutional. Rumor has it that we'll all be sent home soon. We're scared. We know we won't have a home to go back to. Papa's boats will be gone. We still hear stories about Japanese people being beaten up in the streets. We want to try and stay here as long as possible. Wednesday, January 9th. 1946. We were back home on the west coast, although home is being generous. Manzanar closed in November, and we were forced to leave the camp. They dropped us off in front of the same Buddhist temple we were picked up at. We've had a terrible time finding housing. No new housing projects were built during the war to save resources. Millions of people have moved to California, and with 60,000 Japanese returning, the housing markets have exploded. People are living in trailer parks, set houses, back rooms of houses, church basements, anywhere and everywhere. The American Friends Service helped us find a small apartment in West Long Beach. Sunday, March 5th, 1950. I've never truly stopped thinking about my time in Manzanar and the effect that it has had on me. The Manzanar effect. I'm very conflicted inside. There's part of me that wants to disappear, to become invisible. It wouldn't be that difficult either. I feel like all anyone sees when they look at me is this slant-eyed Asian. You can't deport 110,000 people unless you stop seeing them as individuals. I fear that we as Japanese Americans I become steeped in the belief that this treatment was somehow deserved. It's an easy attitude for non-whites to acquire in America. Then there's this other side that wants to prove to them that I'm not different. That's not some oddity to hear me speak English. Friday, April 1st, 1955. Today is our beautiful baby boy Derry's third birthday. Our little family with Adam and Derry brings me so much joy. But... It's not enough to remove the shadow of those long years in Manzanar over 10 years ago. The amount of shame that still hangs around me from the almost four years that were taken from us. The profound unworthiness that it instilled in me. I haven't spoken about it with Papa or Mama. I thought that Kayo's death four years ago would bring us closer as a family, but we're still miles apart. I never got to ask him how he internalized the experience. Thursday, August 6th, 1970. Papa finally passed away today after being sick for the last three years. The newspapers were commemorating the 25th anniversary of the U.S. atomic bombing of Hiroshima. 
the city Papa was born in over 70 years ago. It's taken me almost two decades, but I think I can finally understand what Papa went through during our internment. It came to be known that Papa worked as an interpreter during his time in that North Dakota prison before being sent to live with us in Manzanar. The rumor was that Papa used the inside information he acquired to negotiate his release. Whether or not this is true didn't matter, because this branded him as disloyal, and for a man raised in Japan, there is no greater disgrace. I know now that it humiliated him and brought him face to face with his own vulnerabilities. He was stripped of his rights, his home, and his control over his own life. It made him powerless. This same kind of emasculation happened to every man in those camps. I was never brave enough to ask him any of this. He may have just died, but his life, in many ways, ended in Manzanar. Sunday, March 21st, 1972. I had never told Adam about my time in Manzanar. He knew my family lived there, and from time to time, he would try to get me to open up to him about my life in camp. But I can't. I just can't. As I come to fully understand what my time in Manzanar means to me, I carry around a great sense of shame of being a person guilty of a crime large enough to deserve the treatment we endured in those concentration camps. For so many years after being released, I tried to appease my accusers by becoming someone who was acceptable. It took me another 20 years to build up my self-confidence enough to truly know that I no longer had to atone for some imaginary transgression, though the shame you never truly lose. We may have walked out of Manzanar in 1945, but I never truly left its barbed wire walls. I have lived with a Manzanar state of mind for close to 30 years. I have not outgrown the shame, guilt, and sense of unworthiness that was my parting gift upon leaving that place so long ago. I hear of people who live through the camps making pilgrimages back with their families, but I don't think I had that trip in me, especially now that Kayo, Mama, and Papa are all gone. Still, I can't help but wonder if going back and walking those grounds with my husband and son, telling my stories, and letting them see the place through my eyes would finally give me an opportunity to say goodbye. God damn it! Fuck! 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 Why couldn't she tell me this? Why'd she feel like she had to hide this from us? I would have gladly gone back with her. Why, why, why? Why did I do this? What's the point? I'm so fucking stupid. Japanese-American internment was the forced relocation by the United States government of thousands of Japanese-Americans to detention camps during World War II. 
This action was the culmination of the federal government's long history of racist and discriminatory treatment of Asian immigrants and their descendants that began with restrictive immigration policies in the late 1800s. In 1869, the first Japanese arrived on the U.S. mainland and settled in Gold Hill, California. In 1870, Congress granted naturalization rights to free whites and people of African descent omitting mention of Asian races. In 1886, the Japanese government lifted a ban on immigration, allowing its citizens to make permanent moves to other countries for the first time. In 1911, the U.S. Bureau of Immigration and Naturalization ordered that declarations of intent to file for citizenship can only be received from whites and people of African descent thus allowing courts to refuse naturalization for people of Asian descent. In 1913, the Alien Land Bill prevented Japanese aliens from owning land in California. In 1924, Congress passed an Immigration Act stating that no alien ineligible for citizenship shall be admitted into the U.S. This stopped all immigration from Japan. The Japanese word Issei reflected first-generation people of Japanese descent living in the U.S. These were people born in Japan and most immigrated between 1819 and 1915. The Japanese word Nisei reflected second-generation people of Japanese descent living in the U.S. These were U.S. citizens by birth, most of which were born before World War II. The Japanese word Sensei reflected third-generation people of Japanese descent living in the U.S. These were U.S. citizens by birth, most of which were born during or after World War II. Despite the hostile environment created by racist and discriminatory tactics, Japanese immigrants and their American-born children settled and built ethnic communities and institutions in the U.S. mainland. With agriculture as the core economic engine, Little Tokyo has emerged in West Coast cities and Japanese-American community institutions proliferated. At the same time, rising tensions between Japan and the U.S. had many of these Japanese communities on edge, fearing the worst. For nearly a decade prior to World War II, various federal agencies had been conducting surveillance in Japanese communities in anticipation of a possible war with Japan. The general consensus from these probes being that the Japanese communities in America pose little threat to the U.S. in a potential war. Pearl Harbor is a U.S. naval base located in Honolulu, Hawaii, which was a U.S. territory at the time. On the morning of Sunday, December 7, 1941, just before 8 a.m. local time, 353 aircraft of the Imperial Japanese Air Force surprise attacked the base. The attack killed 2,403 U.S. personnel, including 68 civilians, and destroyed or damaged U.S. Navy ships, including eight battleships. The attack was preceded by months of negotiation between the U.S. and Japan over the future of the Pacific. Japanese leaders demanded the U.S. end its sanctions against Japan, ceasing aiding China in the Second Sino-Japanese War, and allow Japan to access the resources of the Dutch East Indies. Anticipating a negative response from the U.S., Japan sent out its naval attack groups in November 1941, just prior to receiving the whole note. The U.S. demanded that Japan withdraw from China and Indochina. The Japanese intended the attack as a preventative action. 
Its aim was to prevent the U.S. Pacific Fleet from interfering with its planned military actions in Southeast Asia against overseas territories of the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, and those of the U.S. At the time of the attack, the U.S. was a neutral country, the attack leading to their formal entry into World War II. On December 8, 1941, Congress declared war on Imperial Japan, officially entering World War II. Immediately following the attacks on Pearl Harbor, a sense of hysteria swept over the nation that a second attack on the U.S. West Coast was imminent. In response to this, government agencies and local police began infiltrating Japanese communities to sniff out potential Imperial Japanese sympathizers and saboteurs. Based on pre-wartime surveillance, custodial detention lists allowed government agencies to round up those who were referred to as enemy aliens within hours of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Japanese families burned flags, documents, and anything else that suggested connection to Japan. Most of the people apprehended in the days immediately following the attack were male Japanese community leaders arrested more for the positions they held than anything they had specifically done. Captives were held in either local facilities or out-of-town detention centers before ultimately being shipped to internment camps to live out the duration of the war. Despite the swift arrest and detention of all supposed suspects, calls for stronger measures soon came from West Coast political leaders. Key figures in the War Department, including the head of the Army's Western Defense Command, General John L. DeWitt, advocated for the removal of all Japanese Americans from the Western states. Attorney General Francis Biddle opposed such measures, but proponents of a mass removal won out. On February 19, 1942, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, influenced by intense political pressure from West Coast politicians, farmers, and labor unions, signed Executive Order 9066, granting the War Department authority to define military areas in Western states and to exclude from them anyone who might threaten the war effort. Exiled Japanese Americans were first sent to short-run detention facilities while long-term concentration camps were built. Endearingly called assembly centers, these army-run camps utilized existing facilities such as fairgrounds and horse racing tracks. Detainees slept in vacated horse stalls and slept on straw mattresses. The average stay in these assembly centers was a few weeks to a few months. Japanese Americans were eventually moved to 10 concentration camps run by a newly created federal agency, the War Relocation Authority, or WRA. Located in desolate desert or swamplands throughout the West and in Arkansas, these relocation centers were surrounded by barbed wire and guard towers and were still being completed when the first inmates arrived. Manzanar War Relocation Center in Owens Valley, California was the first permanent camp to open and began receiving inmates on March 25, 1942. Evacuation of 110,000 people of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast and relocation to the 10 inland camps was completed by August 12, 1942. Inmates lived in blocks of barracks with communal bathrooms, laundry facilities, and dining halls. Extreme weather, dust storms, lack of privacy, and inadequate food were among the many travails of life in these camps. 
Small rooms with a single light bulb and small barrel stoves that housed upwards to 7 to 10 people became the norm. This communal style of living led to the breakdown of family units as children spent most waking hours with friends rather than with family. Many WRA policies favored the American-born Nisei over their Isei-born parents. The WRA attempted to run camps as if they were small towns, establishing schools, places of worship, post offices, recreational activities, and even held elections for self-government. Schools held dances, graduation ceremonies, and distributed yearbooks. Inmates took on much of the work to keep the camps running, from preparing and serving food to felling trees for firewood. Workers were paid $12 to $19 a month. Inmates worked hard to beautify their surroundings and make the campsites their own. They planted gardens and made a wide variety of furniture and decorative items for their units. While a vast majority of Japanese Americans obeyed the Army's exclusion orders, a few chose to challenge aspects of exclusion. Gordon Hirabayashi, Fred Kuramatsu, and Minoru Yashu deliberately violated the government-imposed curfew on Japanese Americans. Minoru intentionally walked into a police station and demanded that he be arrested, and Kuramatsu had plastic surgery done to appear more European. Their cases went all the way to the Supreme Court, with the court ultimately upholding the legality of the racially based expulsion. Unrest from inmates in camps was not uncommon. A December 1942 incident at the Manzanar camp resulted in the institution of martial law and culminated with soldiers firing into a crowd of inmates, killing two and injuring many. The timing and often false reports of this event stoked fear of a pro-access revolt commemorating the one-year anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack. After unrest in the camps during the fall of 1942, the WRA instituted ill-conceived loyalty oaths in the early months of 1943. In an attempt to separate loyal from disloyal internees, the government issued questionnaires with the following two questions. One, would you be willing to serve as a combat soldier, nurse, or in the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps? Two, will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States and forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to the Japanese emperor to any other foreign government, power, or organization? Answers to these questions deemed eligibility to enlist in the army or to leave the concentration camps to resettle in areas away from the west coast. Those deemed as disloyal were segregated to Tool Lake, California concentration camp. Japanese Americans' eligibility for military service was restored. Most who enlisted were part of the segregated 442nd Regimental Combat Team, which fought in some of the toughest battles in the European theater and became one of the most decorated units in the war. Others joined intelligence units in the Pacific as Japanese language specialists whose skills in interrogation and translation greatly aided Allied efforts. With encouragement from the WRA, thousands of mostly young Japanese Americans began leaving camps in 1943 and 44. Prohibited from returning to the West Coast, many headed east for better opportunities such as college or jobs. The government believed that scattering Japanese Americans around the country and preventing reformation of ethnic communities would lessen prejudice against them. In 1944, the army began drafting Nisei men from concentration camps. 
300 resisted the draft, refusing to report until their community's civil rights had been restored. On December 18, 1944, after three previous rulings, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that loyal citizens cannot be held in detention camps against their will, the first major step towards the closing of the camps. One-third of those deemed loyal had left concentration camps by the end of 1944. Japanese Americans were allowed to return to the West Coast in January 1945. Early returnees to the West Coast received a rude reception from those who opposed their return. On August 6th and 9th, 1945, the U.S. military dropped atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan, effectively ending war in the Pacific Theater. On August 15th, 1945, Japan announced a surrender with a formal signed surrender on September 2nd, officially ending World War II. With the war's end, camps were quickly closed down by the end of 1945, with the exception of Tua Lake. On November 21, 1945, Manzanar Relocation Camp officially closed. Those left in camps at the end of 1945 were forcibly evicted back to their place of origin three years prior. Between 112 and 127,000 people of Japanese ancestry were interned in camps between 1942 and 1945. 1,600 prisoners died during their incarceration. Japanese Americans started over and slowly rebuilt their communities that had been resettled in their absence. Returning Japanese faced extreme competition for jobs and housing. Many lost their jobs, housing, and means of working and living they acquired prior to internment. Houses were destroyed or sold, possessions were stolen or destroyed, and lands were seized. Public opinion about the Japanese and their forced internment shifted in post-war years. Many came to recognize wartime incarceration as a mistake and acknowledge Nisei soldiers' heroism in their military service. Japanese Americans were soon proclaimed as a, quote, the model minority. In June 1952, Congress passed Public Law 414, granting Japanese aliens the right to become naturalized U.S. citizens. The Civil Liberties Act of 1988 provided a presidential apology and $20,000 payments to surviving former detainees. Also during the 1980s, the discovery that the federal government had consciously withheld information about the military necessity of mass removal from the Supreme Court in 1944 led wartime defendants to seek to reopen their cases resulted in their cases being overturned. Heavy Head, Season 3, Episode 4, If You Tolerate This, Your Children Will Be Next, is written and produced by Tanner Hines. Adam, voiced by Tanner Hines. Narration and art design by Evan Verrilli. Award-winning original music by Real Blue Heartache Kids. Their music is available online wherever you buy or stream music. If you or a loved one is experiencing a psychiatric emergency and live in the United States, please text or call 988 or text HOME to 741-741 for free and confidential support from the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and the Crisis Text Line. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram using the handle at HeavyHeadPod. Subscribe to our official YouTube channel, HeavyHeadPodcast. You can email us at heavyheadpod at gmail.com. 
Please rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. If you enjoy the show, please share us with a loved one. Lastly, merch is available online at heavyhead.bigcartel.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next month. Until then, take care of yourself. <laughs>